tomorrow marks Canada's second National Truth and Reconciliation Day. As you know, uh, some of you might have the day off, some of you won't. Uh, that's another developing angle to all of this. But over the course of the last year, we have seen all kinds of stories, a lot of conversation, and one piece that keeps coming up, and I think for me anyway, one of the more interesting pieces to this is intergenerational trauma. And I think that's sort of, to start with understanding and with reconciliation, that piece makes a big, big difference. So to join us and talk about that, we have Karen Snowshoe. He was uh, principal and founder of the Gwisley Institute of Learning. If I said that right, and I probably didn't. Karen, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Shay. Did I say that correctly, Gwisley? Uh, it's, it's actually Guiji. Guiji. Okay, I'm yeah. sorry, I'm sorry. It's okay. It's spelled uh, G-W-I-Z-H-I-I. Gotcha. Okay. And wisdom in um, the Gwich'in language. Fair. In my old eyes, I somehow saw an L out of one of those eyes, so okay. I apologize. Um, intergenerational trauma, um, something that I think I've developed a much better understanding of over the course of the past year, and, and in doing so, it's really changed the way I view everything around this conversation, because understanding intergenerational trauma and the effect that it has, that's sort of, that's the main piece of the puzzle, right? That's the fundamental piece that you have to have a grasp on. Oh, definitely. In terms of if you're looking at, if you're looking at the current realities facing many Indigenous communities and many Indigenous peoples, you know, disproportionate rates of children in care, of people incarcerated, of addictions, of, you know, X, Y, Z, it is crucial to have an understanding of that. So the direct trauma would have began <clears throat> with the uh, mandatory operation of Indian residential schools. There were 109 of them uh, operating across Canada between 1884 and 1996. And there we know uh, that there were serious abuses of children ranging from sexual abuse to very serious physical abuse, what the Supreme Court of Canada has called cultural genocide. Um, a lot of shame generated that generated from that around identity, around abuse, and of course a lot of um, learned a survival uh, trauma survival responses that were then passed on from generations to generations. Okay, and that's the consideration because I think we can all understand. Okay, if you were in that situation and it was you know, being inflicted upon you, the trauma is obvious. We understand that. But there's a lot of people that say, you know, that was 50 years ago. But how does it translate from one generation to the next? Oh, it, it, it's huge. It could be an example of um, uh, patterns of addictions. Say, for example, if uh, people who had experienced direct trauma were then uh, perhaps out of the shame of abuse or whatever uh, feelings they were expressing, turn to a substance, right, to help numb those, those feelings. Many children and grandchildren would feel the impacts of that in terms of a parent or grandparent simply not being fully present, if that makes sense, right? right. And then, uh, of course, those, those patterns can be passed on in terms of um, learned uh, behaviors as well. Another one that we see quite often is because children uh, attending Indian residential schools, there was often a lack of emotional care, right? emotional care or physical demonstration of caring and love, like maybe a, a hug, a sense of encouragement. And maybe because the survivors of direct trauma at Indian residential schools may have been physically abused, they may have been sexually abused. And therefore, in terms of how they've ended up, and I say they, including my own family, my 
my grandmother was the first generation to go to residential school. So if I look at what I experienced was definitely there was a lack of ability with my grandmother and then passing on to my mother of <clears throat> sort of the, the the hugging and the encouragement and maybe the emotional um, the emotional part of being supportive of uh, a child. Another one that plays out quite significantly across communities is hypervigilance, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if somebody had been abused, then it's often quite what happens. They become hypervigilant over their own children. So it may come across as maybe overbearing, or, uh, but really it is a hypervigilance over not wanting anyone to harm their own children. And then we see that play out in so many ways in society. And once you sort of understand where it's coming from, you can see how it's causing so many issues for us now, right? Oh, it's it's huge because anytime you're dealing with trauma that is not yet healed, there are going to be issues. And I really like the way that you phrased it in terms of, well, this, this was historical. This happened uh, so long ago. But what you have to keep in mind is that the last Indian residential school, the last two didn't close till 1996. One was in the Northwest Territories in Inuvik, and the other was in Saskatchewan. So you've got people now in their 40s who are quite young relatively, right, mm-hmm. who are who who experienced all the direct impacts. So I guess this is all to say that the uh, people who've uh, experienced direct impacts and generational trauma are still struggling with that. And that is one of the many legacies of of Indian residential schools. And again, it's all alive here today. And I think um, in our communities um, experienced by Indigenous peoples who have who have those connections to community and to family who had been in, in attendance. So is it a cycle? I mean, it sounds like a cycle. It, it, it's, it continues generation to generation to generation, um, and it's almost cyclical. And we always hear talk about end the cycle, break the cycle, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's what I'm uh, aimed at doing. I, I'm trained as a lawyer, mediator, arbitrator, and the reason I decided to found the Guiji Institute of Learning is really to look at how do we break those cycles. So a lot of the workshops, I work with organizations, different level of government. It's really around understanding exactly what you've been asking today, Ex- really gaining an understanding yeah. of but what we do is we go through a journey of three generations of indigenous women there you see in a very concrete way you know from not the early 1920s to today what the impacts have been what the generational impacts have been and also what the resiliency has been right and then from then I think once people realize just how prevalent trauma is, that it's not just something that Indigenous peoples are facing, it, it touches people and it opens their hearts in terms of why this is so tied into reconciliation, right? And why it's tied into, I, I think, more of the collective healing of, um, of our nations. But that's what we aim to do in our workshops is really create an understanding. And we really... Um, base it in the science of the physiology of how trauma impacts the body and the brain, because that is universal. People may experience different types of trauma, different types of generational trauma, but the way that those traumas and generational trauma show up in people's lives physiologically uh, in the brain and the body is pretty much universal. And I think that's something that creates a lot of buy-in for the public because then yeah, help, help me with that. What ways? Give us an example of what what is a typical physiological response to trauma. Well, uh, 
triggers, for example. So if you look at maybe somebody, um, you know, I've worked with people who've, uh, young soldiers who've come back from Kandahar in the, um, um, you know, say around 2009, and the triggers from exactly, from witnessing abuse, witnessing abuse, um, from maybe uh, uh, being in the middle of crossfire has created longer-term post-traumatic stress effects so that a soldier, say, for example, who is just uh, has returned and is now um, a veteran, might be minding her own business walking down the street, and all of a sudden um, a tire, a tire fires or a tire blows, right? Mm. That person physiologically in that moment would be triggered and taken back to the original trauma, right? So they are now no longer present in the here now. They are back in time um, with experiencing the very um, fight or flight symptoms that they would have experienced back then. So that's something very similar. Here's an example. So Remember the Pope's visit, right? That could have been very triggering for people. Right. Yeah, and we heard about that. I, yeah. yeah, and when I talk to lawyers, for example, I say when you're working with Indigenous peoples who most likely are experiencing generational uh, impacts of generational trauma, right? You have to be aware of triggers, and that's where the trauma-informed nature comes in. So, for example, um, if you're working with them, try not to wear black, white, or gray, because if they attended Indian residential school, it's very likely that their abuser would have been wearing those colors. Do you see what I mean? Oh, Little okay, things. yeah, okay, I yeah. hear you. Yeah. It, it's fascinating, and, and like I said, I think it's it, it's that foundational piece, Karen, so uh, such important work, and I thank you for coming on today and, and sharing some of your work with us. Thank you so much. No, thank you, Shay. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Yeah, thank you. That's Karen Snowshoe, uh, who is the principal and founder of the Guiji Institute of Learning. And as we said, tomorrow is Canada's second annual um, National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.